1 Corinthians 13. I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, not 13, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to take a break from Matthew today, and uh, I want to spend some time uh, just talking about a few things that the Lord has uh, laid on my heart in uh, reference to finances. Uh, Some things that are really important, I think, for us as a church to consider, and uh, they're coming as a result of our discussion uh, that we had last week and our vote uh, for our budget. Uh, as, as you may or may not be aware, we, we did vote on the budget for 2015. Uh, that passed by a unanimous vote. There was not a single dissenting vote. So uh, this isn't uh, because there was an issue in that meeting. It's because of things that we're learning as, uh, as, as we're talking to people and as, as God is giving us the opportunity uh, to learn among people. And so uh, I want to take some time to have a family meeting. Now, here's, here's the deal. This is, this is casual. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk to you like my friends because I think you are. And uh, I, I, want to, I want to just tell you what's going on in my heart and talk through these issues. And I'm going to give uh, the opportunity at the end for question and answer. So if you have questions that uh, you'd like to ask, please uh, write those down and let's talk through those. But there's some important things that I need to talk to you about uh, before we even get to that point. So let's, uh, let's pray. Lord God, would you please help? In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, several things that I'd like to discuss, uh, all of them related to finances, some wrong things, uh, some things that the Lord uh, over this last week has uncovered that uh, I think that we all need to be aware of, uh, some things that are going to change, uh, and uh, all of this, of course, is uh, driven by some scriptural things. And finally, we have some uh, things that uh, we've planned as an elder team that we're going to begin to roll out. And so uh, we'll deal with each one of these. Let's start with some of those uh, wrong things. I've made some mistakes recently uh, in reference to the finances. And I think that uh, they come underneath two different headings. One of them relates to method, and the other one relates to mood. Uh, So let me talk through that first one. Here's my job. Uh, My job is to preach the word. That's it. That's what my job is. My job is to preach the word, and I have to leave all of the discipleship at the hands of God and trust him that he's going to work in people's hearts and 
and bring about change as he sees fit. And uh, I, as we've been talking through finances uh, recently, I have had some what I thought were just clever ideas of uh, ways that we can approach them, and it just it just boiled down to some gimmicks. And I wasn't trying to do any kind of chicanery or trickery or some something surreptitious that was trying to you know hoodwink you. Uh, it just boiled down to me trying to come up with a, a really helpful way of approaching finance. And in the end, it was, it was akin to almost selling some bricks. And uh, everybody gets to put their name on a bricks, and if they give $100, then uh, they get to have a brick that gets put on the church sidewalk or whatever. That's, not, that's just not my job. That was, that was poor choice. It was uh, a mistake. It was wrong. I shouldn't, I shouldn't approach my job that way. And, um, and I think that in the end, it's not, it certainly wasn't motivated out of anything, any kind of ill will, uh, but it's not, when we anal- analyze it, it's not moving from faith. And in the end, that's what I have to do as I approach my job. I have to preach the word, and trust that God is going to work in people's hearts however he sees fit. Just like you, when you have something that you want to see happen in your kids' lives, you bring it up to them, and you work to disciple them, and you wait on God to accomplish that in their hearts. Same thing with your spouse. There's no difference between what I do in my job and what uh, we ought to do with our families. So I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Uh, this has been a process of learning for me, and I have needed the Lord to teach me this, uh, and I'm very thankful for the lesson. And I am going to preach the word and wait on God. Uh, the other issue is... Uh, in re- I'm sorry. Um, The other issue is in relationship to the mood of some of my comments. It's wrong. Um, I, I, I think that some of my comments have communicated that I'm irreplaceable. And that's just wrong. I'm quite a forgettable person. Uh, there are many smarter, better educated, more articulate people capable of speaking in much simpler terms than me. Uh, probably people that don't look homeless. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I think that those people would take this post. And uh, so anyway, in these last weeks that I have communicated, or any time in the last years that I've communicated that I'm irreplaceable, I I hope you can forgive me because I am certainly replaceable. I also have, uh, in my comments, I hope 
that you can understand what I'm saying. I have made some things, I've, I've made some comments that were hyperbole. Um, they weren't intentionally, uh, you know, this, this far extreme, but the, I think that in, in, in saying these things, uh, it was interpreted as, as desperation or that I'm on the verge of breakdown or that I'm ready to quit. And, uh, and, and I think that uh, it, was, it was basically people received it as if that I'm about to fall apart and not interested in continuing unless something changes. And that's just not, that's just not true. Um, that wasn't the intent of my comments, but it, it, it's just not the case. So forgive me for the mood of these comments, uh, please. Now, in the process of teaching me these things, which, uh, look, they've been mistakes, and I, I, I communicate this to you with no caveats. I mean, these, these, these are things that I have done that uh, I really wish I hadn't, and I really wish I'd approached things differently. And I, I've, the Lord has, has given me opportunity over the course of this past week to... Um, to learn these things, and I've sat and thought about them, and just every time, just kick myself, thinking, "Man, I really wish I approached this differently." But uh, God has also been at work uh, uncover, uncovering some things about our church that I think are really important and that we need to discuss as a church family. So, uh, not only are we discussing some wrong things in reference to me, but there's some things that uh, I think the Lord has made clear about what's going on in our church, and it's important that we all understand it. Uh, so here's the deal. Last week, we unanimously approved a 2015 budget. There wasn't, there wasn't any dissenting votes. Um, so on the surface, we would assume that our church is, is unified in regard to finances. Um, because we were unified in our vote. There wasn't anyone that said, no, this isn't the right way to go. Um, we were all unified. And so it stands to reason that we would be unified in our hearts because our vote was the outward expression of where we have been led by the Lord. But what I'm learning is that there's not unity in our church in reference to the finances. Uh, and, and what I say is, is not uh, assumed. I'm not simply you know, coming to these conclusions and shooting from the hip. I know that this is the case, and I've spoken with many of you, and uh, I am pretty confident in my assessment of what I'm about to say. Uh, so this is broad. It relates to the whole church. Uh, it's not narrowly targeted at a single person, uh, not even uh, at the one uh, question that was raised this past week, and, and I'll talk about that a little bit later. We're really talking about everyone, and the division relates to my salary. So let me describe this uh, to you with some generalities. There's two different thoughts, two different groups of thought. The first is uh, what we'll call Group X, uh, and generally speaking, uh, this one group supports the salary, and uh, they think that the salary is right, or they may even wish that it could be more. Some of the people in this group are frustrated because the line item uh, is well below, uh, or is below or well below many others in the same or similar role. Uh, these people think that it's taken too long to get to this point on salary. Uh, in fact, some of these people have met with me personally over the course of this past year and have really encouraged me to focus more on finances and confronted me for a lack of focus on finances. Um, 
Also, this group wants to fully fund this line item before they move on to another elder or church planter. And they feel very strongly about this. And, and you have been, if you've been with us for any period of time, you've been in business meetings and you've heard people be pretty vocal about this. And so this isn't something that I'm just making up. There's this other group. This is group Y. And again, speaking generally, the other group doesn't support the salary. Uh, and, uh, and, and this group tends to think that the salary is too high. That, in conjunction with the mood of some of my regrettable comments, has led to get the impression that I'm greedy or in this for the money. Uh, many make comparisons to their experience growing up. My dad, my uncle, my grandpa was a pastor and he made X, and so you know, we should make it about that same amount. Or you know, we lived on X money and that's, that's how it should be here. Now, Group Y also thinks that the salary is coming too soon that we're proceeding uh, with moving forward with this and it's too early within the life of our church plant. The idea is that we're being too aggressive uh, and we're doing this too soon on this line item and we ought to just wait. And finally, this group uh, thinks that this salary is unfair because Pastor Andrew is not receiving a salary. The argument is, why can't we split the funds between Seth and Andrew? And because we haven't done that or because we've made accomplishing one of those salary items a priority, the, whether it's said or not, the idea is that there's some kind of selfishness that exists on my part because we haven't moved forward with the other piece. Now, here's the deal. We cannot have division. We cannot have division in this church. Now, and the reason why is because we are the church of Christ, Jesus said this. It's pretty amazing, actually. He says, I don't ask for this. Here he is in the Garden of Gethsemane prior to his crucifixion, talking to his father. He says, I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So, the way in which the world is going to understand that the Father sent the Son is by the testimony of our unity together as believers. That's what Jesus says. That means that we cannot have division because it ruins our witness. We can't have division. We are a family. We are a body. We cannot be divided one against the other. We have to be unified. So uh, it's through our unity that the world is going to believe that the Father sent the Son and God has called us to be united in Jesus Christ. We cannot let something separate us that's as minor and insignificant as money. I just can't bear to see that happen. It's, it's truly insignificant. But I realize that this is important to many of you, and, and I realize that in order for us to work through these issues, we have to have a foothold on which to stand. Because again, there are two parties, and I'm not uh, I'm saying that either one of these parties is illegitimate in their thinking, um, or, or that one rules over the other. We are a unity which means we have to put our arms around everyone and we have to unite everyone together and we have to come to a unified conclusion together so that we can move forward. And if we don't do that, then we're not going to be able to move forward. 
So here's what we need to do. We need to move whatever is causing an obstacle for unity out of the way so that we can get the proper foundation laid and then be able to move forward from there. We have to be able to do that. And so I've recommended some things to the elder team and to the financial team. Uh, and they came back with some additional changes. And I'm going to describe them to you here in a moment. These are big changes and important changes that I think remove some of these obstacles so that we can do the work of discipleship for us to grow together into a unity. But before I, want to, before I explain what those changes are, I want you to understand that these don't come to me as a, a punishment or a way of doing penance. Uh, these, these come because the unity of the church and the clarity of the gospel message is more important to me than any paycheck. Uh, we have some real discipleship to do, and there's no way of progress while there's an obstacle in the way, and so I want them removed. So here are the changing things. Uh, here's the first one. We're going to need to get some financial errands. You guys know Moses and Aaron and how all that worked. Uh, it's quite awkward for you to have me talk about finances. It's just it's awkward. It's not wrong. It's just awkward. Uh, it's, and, and we've had to do that just because of where we were and the progress of our growth. I mean, we're, we are officially as a church, we're three years old. We'll be four years in June. Uh, you know, I've been doing the work uh, for Torn Curtain Church for four years now. December 7th was the beginning date for me uh, four years ago. And, and now, you know, now we're at the point where we need to grow beyond me talking about the finances. And we really need to have some uh, other people in place to be able to do that. Uh, so what in the world is, is an Aaron? Well, just like Moses had Aaron speak for him as a representative, the elder team needs a representative to speak to the church. So it's not wrong for me to have spoken to the church, but it, it, so it's, it's been born out of necessity, but it's extremely uncomfortable for me to do it, and it's extremely uncomfortable for you to have me do it. All right, so we got to make some changes in reference to that. Uh, and here's what we're going to do. If the Lord sees fit to give us Frank Martin as our third elder, then he'll be our representative for the elder team. And then, in addition, we'll have a member of the finance team, preferably a deacon, who will also team up with Frank on this responsibility. When we do business meetings, uh, I'll give the floor to the financial errands who will take care of communicating the business related to the budget, and then I'll move on with the rest of our business meeting agenda as normal. And that way, I'm taken out of the picture. I'm not having to be the one that's communicating these things. And, and, and I have to admit, this is extremely awkward for all of us. And so it's just best for us to make this change. We really need it. Here's the next change. I'm not going to propose or accept any salary increases until I'm confident that we are unified in our discipleship related to finances. Uh, if we're in a financial position, if I was in a financial position to, restop, to stop receiving a paycheck altogether, I would have requested that. I'm not in this for the money. If I could have stopped getting a paycheck today, I would have done that. The dis this disunity and the thoughts behind it are such an obstacle in the way of the gospel that I would rather suffer loss than stand by and see it cut away at God's work. Money is totally inconsequential to me. It's 
irrelevant. It makes no difference. I did this job for free or nearly nothing for years, and I would do it for free again. I have no, I'm not in this for the money. This is not about money to me. And when you look at the money, it's pretty absurd. I'm not in this for the money. I have a responsibility to fulfill regardless of how the church fulfills its responsibility. And I'm going to obey God. It's not about money for me. But I realize is that as we work through the discipleship that's necessary for the church to grow through this, that there is no way for me to remove the obstacles in the way of the gospel while at the same time increasing the salary that some think is suspect. It's not possible. I can't do both at the same time. So even though we approved three salary ramp-ups for 2015, I'm not going to include any of those in an agenda until I'm confident that we've worked through these issues and that we're unified. So that brings me to an important point. We have to grow. There's disunity. We need to be unified. We have to grow. But there is a problem, and it's a generational problem. And that is that there is a passive-aggressive approach to conflict, especially in younger generations. Here's what it looks like. And I'll use the, the, the budget as, a, as an example. Last week, we approved the budget unanimously. Everyone approved it. But there were some of you that approved it while at the same time having a problem with it. That's not right. You should have come and talked to me about it in advance of approving the budget. That is the explicit command of Jesus Christ. Jesus says that if, you, if your brother has done something against you, you need to go and talk to your brother. Not send an email. Not send an email and quit. That's not the way that we deal with problems as Christians. That is ungodly. That's worldliness. Jesus says even if you think your brother has a problem with you, you are to go to your brother and talk to your brother. Leave your gift at the altar, Jesus says, and go and be reconciled with your brother. So we got we to gotta put aside a passive-aggressive approach to dealing with problems because we're not going to grow as a church. You're not going to grow as people unless we start to deal with problems the way that Jesus has commanded us, which is to talk through those things and to work through those things. I'm not an unreasonable person. This is not an unreasonable church. We want to work through problems the way that Jesus has commanded us to, because we're Christians. We want to honor him with the way that we deal with problems. So we're not to talk to other people. Like, if, if we didn't approve of the budget, and I, I'm not saying this because I know that this has happened with one person or another, but if we don't approve of the budget, and specifically if we have a really pr- a big problem with the salary line, our, we, our, the proper response is not for us to go into a room and talk to a whole bunch of people about it. The proper response is especially to read the budget in advance of approving it and then don't vote for it if you don't approve of it. Talk to me about it. Talk to uh, to the finance team about it and let's work through those issues. Let's not approve it and then disapprove it behind closed doors. That's not the way that we deal with problems. That's not right. It's impossible for us to really know whether or not we've made progress 
in, in, in gaining a deeper unity together unless we're honest about our perspectives in relationship to these things. So it's come and talk to me. Come and talk to Andrew. Talk to, talk to one of the guys on the finance team, Rob or Dan, Dan Vasquez, Rob Leatherwood. Let's work through these things so that we can all be on the same page and move forward. So we, we, we approved a budget last week, but lots of you had a problem with it, and only one person raised an issue during the meeting, only one. And I deeply respect him for raising that issue within the meeting because that's the right thing to do. Just because you raise an issue doesn't mean you're being argumentative or mean or ungodly. You're, you're, you have a question, and it's a legitimate question, and so you should raise it. We should talk about it. We won't, we won't point you out or be mean to you or stone you or you know, burn you at the stake. We, we work through the issue. That's what we have to do. That's how we deal with it. But lots of you said nothing and voted for the budget and had a problem with it, and that should not be. It shouldn't be that way. We can't continue to do that. We have to talk through our issues the way that Jesus commands us to. That's face-to-face, not by email, person-to-person, not by text. So although we've approved three salary ramp-ups for 2015, I'm not going to include any of those in any agenda until I'm confident that we've worked through these issues and that we're unified, but you have to tell me if you have an issue. Okay? Last we need to revisit the salary goal through different accountability. What does that mean? Well, we've set up the salary goal to be 75000 and there are some people that have a real problem with that, okay? And, and so we're going to revisit that through different accountability. Now, that, that piece has been in place for a couple of years now, uh, but I understand that people have an issue with it, and so I don't want that to be an obstacle, because I don't care about the money. So I'm willing to allow this to be revisited. You want to make it less? Fine. Okay? Now, that puts me in an incredible awkward position that no one else on earth, uh, with, with the exception of someone that's in this very spot, has to be in. I mean, nobody takes a job and uh, doesn't know what they're going to get paid. Uh, it's, it's, that's, that's very rare, unless you're commission only. Uh, it doesn't typically work like that. I mean, everyone gets an offer, and then they start. Um, and, you know, if it happens that someone starts working and then finds out what their salary is going to be, then, uh, you know, it, it's just it's awkward. It just doesn't seem to happen. You know, I've, I've worked at billion-dollar companies. I've worked and in in, in, in placed people at billion-dollar companies. I've worked in big churches and small churches. And even if you're candidating at a church, you know in advance what the salary is going to be. Even if you're a missionary, you know in advance what your money is going to be. It just doesn't happen that someone starts a job, and especially someone works a job for four years, and then all of a sudden finds out what his salary is going to be. Just This doesn't happen. It's unheard of. On top of that, it, it doesn't happen that someone continues a job, I mean, in, when they have their salary diminished, uh, now, I've worked with candidates all across the country that have had issues with employment because of uh, some reason or another. The, the employer didn't fulfill the end of the bargain listed on their offer letter. I'm not saying this in a threatening way, so please don't misunderstand me. I'm just telling you that these kinds of things, th- this doesn't happen. But it is so important to me for this church to continue The unity of this church is so important to me 
your walk with Christ is so important to me, then I'm willing to undergo the unheard of for the sake of the unity, for the sake of the body. Because I don't care about the salary. I left Greenville by faith, went on deputation for 11 months, getting no money while I was on deputation, apart from $85 love offerings for traveling all the way up to West Virginia or wherever else we went, you know. And, and, and God provided. I just trusted him, and he worked out the details. He provided for me. And then when we came back to Greenville, we came back to Greenville by faith, and I trusted him that he would provide for me then. I don't have any reason to doubt him. None. So whether I get a million-dollar salary for this or whether we cut the salary down to $15,000 a year, I'm going to do what the Lord has called me to do. That's it. For some of you, the salary just gets your goat, and I, I understand that. And so what we're going to do is we're going to leave the 2015 budget where it is, and thus all spending is going to move forward as approved. Uh, but before we move forward on any increases in the salary, we're going to review it under different accountability. Here's what that, that's going to look like. At the very least, this will include the finance team and a member of the elder team, not me. And the elder team may add additional people in that mix as well. And the group will present recommendations regarding the salaries. And what I want to do with this is I want to see the church united. So you guys come up with the right number, and let's move forward with that. Okay? So how does this relate to Scripture? I'm glad you asked. Uh, Paul talks about this, and I think it's important for us to review what Paul says because it, it plays into exactly where we are as a church. And so let me read to you some of the things uh, that he says in 1 Corinthians 9. He starts off by talking about three things that um, he, he are, are, are his for the taking in reference to his gospel work, okay? Three important things. First of all, he says in verse 4, uh, do we not have the right to eat and drink? What he's talking about there is that he, he ought to have provisions for life as he preaches the gospel. Secondly, he talks about uh, in verse 5, um, the, the right to take along a believing wife, as the other apostles do in the brother of our Lord and Cephas. What he means by that is implicitly that he has the right to be married, but also that he can take his believing spouse along with him and have all of these provisions that he just mentioned be for him as well as for her as she ministers to him. In essence, what we're talking about is a family. Uh, and then the third thing that he says is in verse 6, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? That is, to abstain from working a regular job and it's in its place receive financial remuneration from the church. He was saying that that is something that he ought to have access to as a minister of the gospel. So the question is, do these things apply to elders within the church? I mean, Paul is talking, and he's an apostle. And so the question is, is it right to make an application of this to a pastor? Uh, because Paul's obviously a bit different than a pastor. So the question is, specifically, do rights uh, of these rights apply to elders within the church? And, and the answer is yes. 
If you look at the illustration that Paul gives, and he gives quite a few different illustrations within the text, uh, each one of those is also applied to elders. And so you look at verse 7, and he talks about how he serves as a soldier. He says, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Should this be applied to elders, that is, non-apostles? Well, Paul uses this exact same term in reference to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He says, serve the Lord. He says, uh, share in the suffering as the good soldier of Jesus Christ. No soldier gets entangled with civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So Paul charges Timothy as a soldier in his role as an elder. And thus, this should be applied to elders. If you look at uh, verse uh, 7 and the second part of that, it says, uh, who plants a vineyard without eating any of this fruit? Should this apply to elders, uh, that is, non-apostles? Well, if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, especially in verse 5, Paul talks about how Apollos planted. Now, Apollos was not an apostle. And, and he was saying specifically about Apollos that Apollos planted and God gave the growth. And then in verse 8, he says, He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, God's building. And so Paul makes this direct application of the same language to non-apostles, and thus it's legitimate to apply this to elders. Next, he talks about a pastor. That is, in verse uh, 7, he says, the one who tends the flock. He says, who tends the flock without getting some of the milk? Should this be applied to non-apostles, to elders? You can look at Acts 20, 28, and Paul says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained in his own blood. Elders are called to pastor the flock, and thus it seems appropriate to apply this to them. You can look at verse 9 where Paul talks about the ox. He says, Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law also say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for the oxen that God is concerned, Paul asks? The question here is, you know, when Paul's talking about this and he's making justification for his ability to receive a wage for his labor, is that just for apostles or is that also something that we can apply to elders? Well, Paul makes the application of this obscure text to justify his right to receive the benefit from the church of God. It's no less obscure to apply by this same text uh, to elders, uh, as Paul gives us the example. More than that, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 to 18, he uses this exact same text in application to elders in their role to the church. Listen to what it says. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. That word, that phrase, double honor, means a, a double portion of financial remuneration. It's talking about money. So let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double money, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. The laborer deserves his wages." So in speaking of financial remuneration, Paul makes application of this text to elders universally. This is a universal application to every elder. He also talks about the plowman and the thresher. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 10. The plowman should plow in hope and the thresher in hope of sharing in the crop. Paul uses the same language to talk about Timothy. He says it's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the, his, the first share of the crops. And so Paul uses, make the, the same, uh, makes use of the same illustration to the elder Timothy, and thus it's not illegitimate for us to apply this to elders today. 
talks about spiritual sowing in verse 11. If we've sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? This, of course, is also applied to elders. And if you look at uh, 1 uh, Timothy 5, 17 and 18, the passage that I meant to you, mentioned to you a second ago, it's, it's obvious that Paul is referring to financial remuneration there. So what about uh, elders within the church and thinking about it in some other way besides illustrations? Well, Paul makes application of this same concept to Barnabas, who's not an apostle. You can look at verse 6. He says, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? The fact that Paul makes application of these rights to Barnabas indicates that it's legitimate to apply this to elders today. You can also look at verse 10, where Paul talks about our. He uses our. He doesn't talk about specifically mine. He says, does not he certainly speak for our sake, speaking of the oxen? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher for the hope of sharing in the crop. This could either mean Paul and Sosthenes, who is writing the letter with him, or to the entire New Testament church. Regardless of the effect, either interpretation uh, is, shows us that a, an apostle and a non-apostle receives the benefit of these things. So what happens here is in all of these illustrations, Paul is showing that this is the right and legitimate way for someone that is administering the gospel to receive his wage. It's right and legitimate. And the command of Jesus, I think, is the capstone. This is what Paul says in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 9, 13 and 14. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. In other words, what Paul is saying here is that this is the very command of Jesus Christ. This is his will. This is the way that it ought to be done. So apostles and elders who labor in gospel ministry have these three things. The right to food and drink. It applies to both elders and apostles. The right to take a believing life applies to both apostles and elders. And the right to refrain from work, that is to receive a living from the fruit of the church, applies both to apostles and elders. So here's the question. What can be done with these things that Paul talks about? He, he lists out three things that he gets the benefit of. What can one do with these three things? Well, uh, if you look at the context, I think it's really interesting because 1 Corinthians 8 is it leads directly into this conversation in 1 Corinthians 9. 1 Corinthians 8 is about Christian liberty. And he's talking about the, uh, the elders or the people that have the, the, this meat that is offered to, to idols. And what are they to do with this? And Paul is basically describing these rights wedged between his admonition about the sacrificial use of Christian liberty and the employment of Christian liberty for God's glory. And what he tells us is basically that there are two legitimate uses of rights. Here's the first one. Sacrifice for the benefit of the weak. You have somebody that's in front of you, and they have a hard time with this liberty that you can make use of. And in fact, if you were to make use of this liberty in their presence, you could cause them to sin. So what do you do with that? What do you do in a situation in which you have somebody that you could really hurt? Should you make use of your liberty? No, Paul says that you ought to sacrifice it. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 9 to 13. In the end, what he says at the very end is, Therefore, if food makes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. 
And immediately on the heels of that, he starts talking about his own rights. The other thing that you can do is enjoy these rights for the glory of God. Paul says in chapter 10, verses 23 to 33, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let, the one, uh, let no one seek his own good, but rather the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising question for the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the grounds of conscience. But if someone says to you, this meat has been offered and sacrificed, then don't eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience, not yours, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. His point is that you have the opportunity to take advantage of your rights and enjoy them to the glory of God. So what can you do with rights? You can sacrifice them or you can take advantage of them to the glory of God. And what does Paul do? He lists out his rights to receive food and drink, his daily sustenance, to take along his believing wife, have that sustenance not just for himself, but also for his family, and also to receive a wage from the church. And he establishes with immense biblical clarity that all of those are his. What does he do with them? How does he approach them? Paul sacrifices them. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 12 Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, that is the right to receive a salary, but we endure anything rather than putting an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. 1 Corinthians 9 verse 15, but I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. Verse 18, what then is my reward that my preaching that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as to not make full use of my right in the gospel. So though it was legitimate for Paul to receive his rights from his gospel work, he chose to sacrifice those things to keep the pathway clear for the sake of the gospel. So were the Corinthians in sin because Paul sacrificed his rights? No, they weren't. Uh, The very fact that Paul makes the point that that as he was... uh, as he was giving this information, he was making the point by virtue of his sacrifice that he would be able to set an example for the Corinthians so that they too would be willing to sacrifice their rights for the sake of other people, for the sake of the gospel. And you can note also that Paul did not confront them because they have not given to him. And Paul specifically states that he did not want to obtain this right from them, as he says in verse 15. Rather, Paul is using himself as an example of Christ-likeness and encouraging the Corinthians to do the same with their rights, that is, their Christian liberty. So, can an elder follow Paul's example? Well, of course they can. Think about it in terms of logic. If, on the basis of the text, it's legitimate to apply all of Paul's rights to elders, then, on the basis of the text, it's also legitimate to apply all of Paul's sacrifice of his rights to elders. In fact, that's what he says right at the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So the answer is, of course, elders can do this. The question is, what can an elder not do? He can't quit preaching the gospel. Paul says in verse 16 to 17, if I preach the gospel, it gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid on me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. 
For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if I do not do it of my own will, I'm still entrusted with a stewardship. The same is true for an elder. Whether he takes advantage of his right or he sacrifices his right, he must still preach the gospel. He doesn't have a choice to quit, regardless of whether or not he's receiving the benefit. So what is the application to our church? It's totally legitimate for us to put aside moving forward on this line for the sake of the gospel. And in fact, I think it's the right thing for us to do because we have to be unified as a church. We have to be brought together. Just as any Christian can sacrifice their liberty to eat meat offered to idols for the sake of weak brothers, then we can sacrifice our liberty. Why? Because if food makes my brother to stumble, I'll never eat meat lest my brother stumble. If a salary line makes my brother to stumble, then I won't receive a salary if God gave me the opportunity to do that, lest I cause my brother to stumble. What is the difference between meat and salary? Not celery. There's, a, there's no difference. There's no difference. What would be a legitimate reason for such a sacrifice? to protect against any obstacles in the way of the gospel. That's what Paul says. Nevertheless, we've not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Should the church remain in this position? No. This isn't right for us to remain here. Uh, in fact, what Paul is talking about in reference to the weak brothers in 1 Corinthians 8 is that there is a deficiency of knowledge and there needs to be growth. And he makes an argument in, in Romans uh, against those people that have a real problem with weak brothers. And he says, look, you should not exclude them. And there shouldn't be a disposition that is not welcoming to them, you that are strong. And you that are weak are not to rule over the strong. Our job, rather, is to disciple them in knowledge. It's not unlike the situation of the Corinthians their weakness was a desire to wield their rights without reference to the knowledge of their brothers. And so Paul used his sacrificial disposition towards his rights as an example of how they ought to act while he taught them the right way to walk. In our circumstance, we're sacrificing the furtherance of a right so that we can disciple the church in the right way to walk, so that we can be unified. This is an issue of patiently waiting until the sheep are prepared to make the next step for Jesus it's not a permanent holding pattern. It's patiently waiting for God to grow all of us in our responsibility, which really brings us full circle. I told you at the beginning that my job is to preach the word. And I wait on the Lord. And that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to preach the word and I'll wait on the Lord. And whenever the Lord sees fit to move forward as far as this is concerned, then we'll do that. I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to give in to difficulty or trouble. The work of discipleship is a hard, long task that we all have to be committed to do because we exist as a church to make disciples and to plant churches. So here are some things that we have planned. We need to have family meetings to work through this. And, and, and I don't want us to have a spirit of disunity. Our goal is to work towards unity. 
Our goal is to increase in our knowledge and our understanding of how this ought to look. We're a young church. We have lots of, not just young church in that we've only been around for a few years, we have lots of young people. And all of us need to grow and develop in this understanding. And so we need to take the time to do that. And we all have to be willing to be patient as we do that. Not bitter towards each other, not upset because we're not making progress fast enough. We have to be willing to sacrifice for each other for the sake of discipleship, for the sake of the unity of the church. All of us have to be willing to do that. All of us. We also are going to need to have personal discussions away with the passive-aggressive approach to dealing with problems. Let's talk about things, okay? I'm not going to beat you up, I promise. Let's, let's talk about things. You come over to my house, and let's have a conversation. I'll take you up to Starbucks. Let's talk through these things. Let's, let's meet together, my wife and I, and your wife and you, and, or you and your husband, whatever, however it works. Let's talk through things, okay? We got to work through this. This is an issue of discipleship and growth for all of us. And God has already been using it as an opportunity for discipleship for me personally. And I'm thankful for that. Finally, uh, we have to be willing, all of us, to wait on the Lord. And as we come to conclusions together, as a church, we have to be completely solidified that this is the conclusion that God has led us to. We're not going to move forward until we're confident of that. Does this make sense? All right, so... What questions do you have?